Good evening, church, and welcome to the midweek service. So glad you're able to tune in with us tonight. If you have your Bibles or your phones, whatever you're going to use to follow along in the Word tonight, grab that and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. We're going to go right back into our series in 1 Thessalonians, A Thriving Church is the title of the series. And uh, we finished uh, last Sunday night through chapter number three. And so turn to chapter number four. That's where we'll be studying tonight, 1 Thessalonians chapter four. And we'll be looking at verses one through eight. Um, I'm excited to tell you that, that uh, coming up this Sunday, we'll be able to have some worship and some singing back into our online service format. Uh, when I got sick, uh, we had to kind of pull that out a little bit. I, I appreciate all those that have stepped in and sang specials and prepared those. And we'll, we'll continue to have special music, but we're also going to have our instrumentalists come back and uh, have some uh, worship music uh, for all of our services starting this coming Sunday. So we're certainly excited about that. But man, even at that, uh, this just isn't normal and uh, it's less than ideal. As we talked about on Sunday night, we're just made to assemble. We're made to be together and I can't wait until we can do that again. But on the positive side, um, with every online service we have to have, it's, it's just another surface closer to where we don't have to have them any longer and we, we can be together. We had a staff meeting um, yesterday and uh, talked about our plans for uh, what we're going to do when we get back together and try to have a really awesome service and kind of a celebration of sorts. So we're looking forward to that and uh, certainly praying that that will be sooner rather than later. Well, if you have your Bible open in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we're going to begin in verses 1 and 2 with just giving you some context uh, for the latter part of the letter. Um, Paul wrote in the first three chapters of 1 Thessalonians, and, and he wrote with a tone of thanksgiving. He wrote a letter back to them thanking them for being a thriving church. Even though they were a young church, they were thriving, they, they were growing and now he's going to transition through verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 into the second half of the letter to the Thessalonians where it's going to go from, from thanking them for being a thriving church to instructing them on how to continue to be a thriving church. So, so the second half of the letter is instructive in nature. It's very, very practical. Look at verse number 1 of chapter 4. Furthermore, then we beseech you, brethren, and exhort you by the Lord Jesus... That as ye have received of us how ye ought to walk and to please God, so ye would abound more and more. So he says, you've done well so far. And I thank you for that. You've been a thriving church. But, but he says now, don't stop. Keep on growing. In fact, he says, abound more and more. I want you to become increasingly pleasing to God. And then in verse 2, he tells them how that can be accomplished. He says this, for ye know what commandments we gave you by the Lord Jesus. He tells this young church that if they want to be more increasingly pleasing to God, like they should be, then they're going to need to be increasingly obedient to God's commands. The commands that Paul had taught them while he was there. Which makes an interesting point that, that you cannot disconnect a life that is pleasing to God with a life that is obedient to God's word. It seems that we live in a culture today, especially in modern day Christianity, 
where every man or woman seems to want to do what's right in their own eyes while at the same time claiming to be a Christ follower. And that's just not right. Paul, Paul really kind of just tears apart that thinking that, that you can't claim to follow Christ and then neglect his commands because he, he ties in the fact that if you want to be increasingly more and more like Christ and pleasing to God, then you are going to have to live a life that is increasingly obedient to God's word. And there are even some pastors that tend to shy away from, from urging their people to keep God's commandments because it sounds harsh. The word commandment seems legalistic, but Paul wasn't being that way at all because at its core, the term legalism is, is really commanding somebody to adhere to man's traditions and man's commandments above the word of God. And Paul makes it clear at the end of verse two that, that, that they are to obey the commandments that they've been given by the Lord Jesus. And so Paul is saying, Thessalonian church, you, you, you've done so well and you're, you, you're thriving up to this point, but I want you to abound more and more. I want you to become increasingly pleasing to God. And the only way that's going to be possible is if you become increasingly obedient to the commands of God's word. And so he begins in verse three after setting that context by giving three examples of what that looks like. By giving three illustrations of, of how they can be increasingly obedient to God and thus be increasingly pleasing to God. In verses 3 through 8, he talks about a life pleasing to God through sexual purity. In verses 9 through 12, he talks about a life pleasing to God through brotherly love. And then in verses 13 through 18, he talks about a life pleasing to God through bereavement. You, you might be able to say it like this. Paul urges them to walk in holiness. Then he urges them to walk in harmony. Then he urges them to walk in hope. And those will be our next three sermons out of Thessalonians chapter 4. The title of tonight's message in verses 3 through 8 is this. A life pleasing to God through sexual purity. Paul was writing to a people in Thessalonica that were surrounded on every side by sexual impurity. In fact, a man by the name of Cicero, who spent some time in Thessalonica, argued in favor of sexual freedom when he said this, let not pleasure always be forbidden. Let desire and pleasure triumph sometimes over reason. Now that's an absurd quote, but that was the prevailing attitude in Thessalonica and really all the Greco-Roman culture in that day. The city was full of these sinful sexual practices such as premarital sex, um, adultery, homosexuality, pedophilia, transvestism, all kinds of pornographic and, and erotic, erotic perversions. And then to make it worse, unlike us today in, in Western civilization, the Thessalonians grew up with no Christian traditions that forbade these practices of sexual sin. So, so before they were saved, these Thessalonians, even the believers that were saved under Paul's ministry, were practicing sexual impurity without any guilt or shame from society at all. Now today, in the United States of America, we may not live in a Greco-Roman world where it's an absolute guilt-free indulgence in impure sexual practices, but I believe we're well on our way to becoming that kind of society. I think we live in a culture that's starting to echo the sentiments 
of Cicero, let not pleasures always be forbidden. Let, let sexual desire and sexual pleasure triumph sometimes over reason. They might not say it in that way, but our society today is telling us, hey, you're free to engage in homosexuality, guilt-free if that's what you desire. You're, you're free to engage in transvestism, guilt-free, shame-free if that's what you think is right. You're free to be bisexual if that's how you think God made you. You're free to engage in sex before you're married because sex is foundational to a happy marriage and, and you need to see if you're gonna be sexually compatible before you make that kind of commitment. They, they tell our kids and our teenagers and our college students, hey, you're free to have sex so long as you're practicing safe sex. But listen, sex that is sinful is never safe. They'll tell us you're free to look at pornography and to pursue self-gratification because nobody will know and it's not hurting anybody else. Listen, the world is telling us much what the Thessalonian world was telling them, that when it comes to sex, do whatever you want. It's totally up to you. That's why Paul wrote to this church and he told them to do just the opposite. He said when it comes to sex, you don't get to do what you want. You need to do what God wants, which is the question of the text. When it comes to the sexual relationship, what does God desire? What is God's will for our life as Christians? Well, look at verse three, he tells us, for this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. Very simply, here's what Paul's telling them. Sexual sanctification is God's will for your life. If you desire to be increasingly pleasing to God, then what he wants for your life sexually is what will matter most to you. Not what you want, not what your flesh wants, not what the world wants for you, not what some friend is pushing on you, but what God wants. And, and Paul says, here's what he wants. His will for us is to be sanctified in our sexual lives. That word sanctification is a big theological term, but it's pretty easy to explain. It simply means to be set apart. When Paul wrote that it's God's will for us to be sanctified in this text and in this context, there are a couple options as to what he might mean there. He could be referring to positional sanctification, which speaks of your position in Christ at salvation, but that, that wouldn't make sense because our position in Christ is not determined by our behavior or whether or not we're sexually pure or impure. Praise the Lord that our position in Christ is determined solely by whether or not we've placed our faith in Christ's death, burial, and resurrection as the payment for our sin. That means Paul has to be referring to progressive sanctification, which begins after salvation and positional sanctification. That is the process of becoming progressively more and more like Christ and less and less like the world. And in this context, Paul is saying that God's will is for you to become increasingly more and more like Christ in your sexual life than you are like the world. And then he gives us two ways that that can be accomplished. Here's the first, abstinence. He says this, sexual sanctification will be accomplished by abstaining from any form of sexual sin. The last part of verse three tells us that. For this is the will of God, even your sanctification, that ye should abstain from fornication. That word fornication is not a limiting word. 
It's a very broad word in its meaning. It comes from the Greek word porneus, which might sound familiar because it's where we get our English word pornography, which, which meant really any kind of sexual relation outside of heterosexual marriage. That's what this word means in the Greek. It's very broad. It could be referring to premarital sex. It could be referring to adultery or homosexuality or transvestism or incest or prostitution or pornography. Now, I want to make it clear that, that, that when I mention those specific sexual sins, I, I, I am not uh, trying to uh, be hateful or condescending to those that are participating in those sins. The truth is God loves them and God wants to forgive them and God wants to help them. But I, I can't dodge the fact that these things are sin. They are contrary to God's plan for sexual sanctification. And here's the truth. By Paul using the word fornication, he's not elevating one form of sexual sin above the other. He's saying that it's God's will for us as Christians to totally abstain from all sexual sin. And that word abstain is interesting. Normally we would think it means just stay away from it. Just, just don't participate in it. Paul means to, to totally avoid it altogether. Don't even come close to it. That's why Solomon, when he was writing to his young boy named Rehoboam in the book of Proverbs, and he was talking to him about the dangers of sexual sin, he said this, remove thy way far from her and don't even come nigh the door of her house. In other words, he told his son, don't even come close to sexual sin. Get as uh, far away from it as you possibly can. Total abstinence. That looks different for everybody in all stages of life. For the teenager, it it might mean getting radical and, and not even taking your phone to your bedroom at night be, because you want to totally abstain from the temptation that is connected to you having your phone in your hand and being alone late at night. Total abstinence for others might mean ceasing an opposite sex relationship altogether, whether that be at work or whether that be at school or whether that be online or sometimes even at church if it's threatening your sexual purity. Total abstinence for others might mean refraining from watching certain TV shows or, or movies or refraining from listening to certain music that, that is sensual and has a way of cheapening the sexual relationship and polluting it in your mind. Hey, that's the only way we can hope to attain God's standard for sexuality. We have to totally abstain from fornication. Now, now let me be clear. God isn't forbidding sex. He created it. It's good. I think sometimes in the church world, we make it sound like it's not a good thing. No, it, it can be a very dangerous thing, but it is a very good thing. God created it, but we know that for everything God created for good, Satan created for and has twisted, rather, for evil. And certainly he's done that in terms of this sexual relationship. And, and so I, like Paul Church, I'm just exhorting you and encouraging you, not that sex is a bad thing, it's a great thing, but it becomes a bad thing when it's sinful, when it's, when it's fornication. And Paul says abstain. Here's the second way that, that we can accomplish God's will for sexual sanctification in our lives. And that's found in verse 4 where he says you need to exercise self-control over your body. So it begins with abstinence and it continues with self-control. Verse 4, that every one of you should know how to, now watch this phrase, possess his vessel in sanctification and honor. 
I believe after studying that word vessel, it's referring to our bodies. And when Paul says that we should know how to possess our vessel or our body, he's referring to self-control. Specifically, the Greek word for possess is referring to the mastery of something. They, They would often use this same term when they described how a master would possess or own or control a slave. And so Paul is telling us that 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 our bodies should be our slaves, not our masters. That you should control your body. It shouldn't control you. When I think of sexual passion and the power of it, I think it can be likened to the power of a horse. They say the average horse can weigh anywhere from 840 to 2200 pounds. And if you've been around a horse, you know that a horse is very powerful and that its power must be under control. That's why they'll break a horse before they let somebody ride it. That's why even after the horse is broken that they'll put a bit and a bridle in the horse's mouth because that horse's power must be under control or it's gonna hurt somebody. In the same way, this sexual desire that God has given us is powerful for good so long as it remains under our control, meaning we have to connect a bit and a bridle to our body that will prevent us from, and that sexual passion from getting out of control and destroying our lives and the lives of others. That means when your eye catches that promiscuous photo online, that you have to pull hard on the reins and exercise control immediately. When, when that coworker who is not your spouse sends you a text message outside of work and begins to open up and wants you to open up to them about non-work related things so as to form a connectional bond that they hope will lead to another step sexually, you have to pull hard on the reins. When a simple commercial on TV or a song on the radio causes your thoughts to go in a direction that is sexually impure. Listen, you gotta pull hard on the reins. And listen, the easiest time to do that is early on in the temptation. Before that temptation can roam free in your mind and gain momentum in your mind, right when that temptation comes, you've gotta act early. You gotta pull on the reins early and get control of your body and those sexual passions Early, unless you think that, that, that there's times when those passions and the desires are too difficult to constrain, rest assured that you're not working alone. You have to get to the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about that at the end of the message. But God has given you a divine enabler to help you do the right thing when the right thing's hard to do. In fact, the Bible says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness. Then it says temperance. That's self-control, meaning that when you're yielded to the Spirit and you're filled with the Spirit and you're walking in the Spirit, the Spirit will give you temperance or, or the ability to control your body even in the midst of intense temptation. So Paul opens by saying sexual sanctification is God's will for your life. And he tells us that can only be accomplished through abstinence and self-control. Now what he's going to do in our text is he's going to flip the coin, so to speak. And he's gonna show us the other side of this argument. He's already told us that sexual sanctification is God's will for our life. Now in verses five through eight, he's going to shift to making this point, sexual sin opposes God's will for your life. So one side is sexual sanctification is God's will. And then here's the the, the big second point on the other side of the coin, Sexual sin opposes God's will for your life. 
And then he goes on and gives us several reasons why sexual sin is in opposition to the believer's life. He begins in verse 5 with this one. That sexual sin opposes God's will for your life because it's a heathen practice. Now I want you to stay tuned and study this with me. Verse 5. Not in the lust of concupiscence, even as the Gentiles, which know not God. When Paul uses the word Gentile, he's not referring to a race of people. After all, the majority of believers that made up this young church of Thessalonica were Gentiles. He was using this term, just like Jesus did in Matthew 6, to refer to non-Christians. Jesus, when teaching his disciples to not worry, he says, don't worry like the Gentiles worry. He, he wasn't speaking about a race of people. He was speaking about a people that were not Jewish. Uh, they, 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 they were not believers. They were not in Christ. And Paul is telling these believers in Thessalonica that, that, that when they let the lust of concupiscence, which is a long fancy term for an overpowering desire on the inside, when they let that lust control their sexual decisions, they're acting like the heathen do. They're acting like they acted before they got saved. And listen, church, there should be a noticeable difference in how we view sex and how we participate in sexual activity than that of the world. Listen, the world objectifies women. Everywhere you turn, the world makes women a mere object. Believers shouldn't do that. Women are made in the image of God. The world cheapens sex by making it all about physical pleasure and they seldom mention the emotional oneness and connection that sex is meant to give inside of a marriage. Hey, believers shouldn't confuse sex like that. The world follows their feelings when it comes to sex. They say, if it feels good, do it. Believers shouldn't live by that motto. The world has made premarital sex and cohabitation acceptable. Believers shouldn't. Listen, we can't follow the world's cues and society's leanings or the culture's definition of sex because it is directly opposed to the will of God for our lives. Here's a second way that sexual sin opposes God's will. It's damaging to others. Now this is a serious one because it doesn't just involve us. It involves those in our lives, around us. It, it damages others. Look at verse 6. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any matter. Now we'll come back to the end of verse 6 in a second. But notice that word defraud. That no man go beyond and defraud his brother in any way. That word defraud means to selfishly take something for personal gain at someone else's expense. And isn't that what happens so often when it comes to sexual sin that somebody seeks to satisfy their physical desire and gain their own sexual pleasure at the expense of another person? And listen, that's directly opposed to God's will because God is, is, is opposed. I would say he detests exploitation in any area of our, of our life, including sex. That means when you sleep with another man's wife, and I know this is sensitive in nature, but this is the word. When you commit adultery, sleep with another wife's husband. Listen, you are defrauding, you're gaining your sexual pleasure at the expense of that person's spouse. And it's damaging to their marriage and it's damaging to yours. 
When you have sex before you're married, even though the world says it's okay, the Bible says it's not okay. And you are gaining sexual pleasure at the expense of the other person's purity. And listen, that is and will be incredibly damaging to their future marriage and to yours. When you look, by way of pornography, at the image of a woman on a screen and that woman is not your wife, you are defrauding that woman. And here's how. Though you may never meet her or see her in person, you are using her body, even if she offers it to you, you are using her body for your own selfish sexual pleasure outside of God's plan in marriage. And listen, her body is not yours. On top of that, pornography is, is you gaining sexual pleasure at the expense of your wife or your future wife. Hey, it's costing her. How so? It's costing her the benefit of being married to a man with a pure mind. She now is having to compete with photoshopped and, and physically enhanced, electronically enhanced images of women that you look at selfishly for pleasure. You're defrauding your current wife or your current husband or your future spouse because now they're having to unknowingly compete with that image. You see how serious this is? And God takes it serious too. I want you to go back to the end of verse 6. Here's what he says, because that the Lord is the avenger of all such, as we also have forewarned you and testified. Hey, it makes sense why God takes the sexual sin towards others in such a serious way, because you're messing with one of his kids. Somebody he created his image. Hey, if you're a parent and somebody selfishly used your son or daughter for sexual pleasure, would that be an offense to you? Of course it would. In the same way, God takes offense. That's his daughter. That's his son. And when you mess with a daughter or a son of the king of kings, especially in a sexual way, you're going to be judged for that. The author of Hebrews confirms that this is the case. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 4. I love the first part of this. Marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. There it goes again like sex is good. It's not dirty, it's not wrong, it's honorable inside the bounds of marriage and the bed is not defiled. But the last part of the verse reveals where it does become defiled. But whoremongers or fornicators, those who commit sexual sin and adulterers, watch, God will judge. I don't find any pleasure preaching on the judgment of God, but if I'm to mind the word of God, I've got to warn you that, that when you commit sexual sin, you're defrauding a brother or sister. You are causing damage to another brother or sister, a person that is created in the image of God. And God takes that seriously, so much so that he promises his judgment upon you. Paul goes on in verse 7 or 8 to teach us another way in which sexual sin opposes God's will. Because it's a willful rejection of God's call to holiness. Look at verse seven. For God hath not called us unto uncleanness, but unto holiness. Now this is serious, because God said this, be ye holy, for I am holy. It wasn't a suggestion. This is a command to all believers. That word holiness is the same exact word used above in verse number three when, when we talked about sanctification. It means a life set apart from the world to God. 
God said that that we are to be a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. That is his call on our life. And living in sexual sin is willfully rejecting or despising his call of holiness. And I want you to look at verse number eight because Paul wanted to make it clear to this church that when they participate in sexual sin, they're not rejecting him. They're rejecting God himself. Look at verse eight. He therefore that despiseth, that means re- rejects the, the, the call to holiness. He despiseth or rejects not man, but God. I think Paul brings this up because he's trying to tell these Thessalonian believers, you shouldn't refrain from sexual sin just because you don't want to disappoint your preacher or let down your spouse or lose the respect of your children. Those are all good motivators But Paul says the main motivation ought to be because you don't want to sin against a holy God. Consider Joseph who refused in the book of Genesis to sleep with Potiphar's wife. And then he told her why. He said this, because if I did, it would be a sin. Or he said this, wickedness against God. Joseph had lofty thoughts of God. He reverenced God. He feared God. And that informed his choices regarding sex, even in the midst of a very intense temptation, one in which he probably would have never been found out. May we have such high thoughts of God and his calling on our lives to be holy that when we're tempted sexually in any way, we'll not want to do anything that would go against that sacred calling and sin against a holy God. Paul ends the text, the end of verse 8, we find our last reason, our last way that sexual sin opposes God's will. It's because it's a grievance to the Holy Spirit. You're not just despising God, but you're grieving the Holy Spirit that God gave you. Look at the end of verse 8. He therefore that despises, despiseth not man but God, who hath also given unto us his Holy Spirit. Now don't miss this. The only hope you have of becoming increasingly pleasing to God through sexual purity is the Holy Spirit. God has placed his spirit within every believer as as a divine equipper, almost like a power source to help you do the right thing when the right thing is hard to do. There is no way in the world in which we live, that you will survive sexual temptation, remain sexually pure, have a pure marriage because of your willpower, because of your personal determination, because of a stubborn personality. No, you will only survive sexual temptation because of the divine enablement that comes from the Holy Spirit. If I were to preach to you such a serious text tonight, And then leave it up to you yourself to obey such a difficult command as the ones we preach tonight. That would be merely moralism. That would leave you hopeless. I can't dodge the fact that God commands you to stay sexually pure. And that's difficult in the world in which we live. And it's not popular. And if you don't, you'll be judged by God himself. I can't dodge those truths and I haven't tonight. But I also am so thankful that Paul put at the end of verse eight, that it's not up to us entirely. 
but that we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. That if you succumb to sexual sin, it will not be because God didn't give you a way out. He's given you his Holy Spirit. When you're walking with the Spirit and yielded to the Spirit and filled with the Spirit, you will have everything you need to do the right thing when the right thing is hard to do. But what do we do so often? We take the one person that God has put in us to escape this sin and this temptation, and what do we do? We greed the one that God has put in our life to help us. We ignore the Spirit of God in the midst of temptation. We muzzle the Spirit of God. We become cold and callous to the Spirit of God. And before long, we don't lose the Spirit. That's impossible once you're saved. But we grieve him in such a way that we become helpless in our fight to sexual sin. So to sum up the text, Paul is giving us two sides of a coin. On one side, he's teaching us that sexual sanctification is God's will for our life and how that can be accomplished. But on the other side, he's teaching us that sexual sin opposes God's will for our lives and why. I don't know about you, but when looking at both sides of those coins, I know which one I want to be on. I want to be in God's will. I want to be increasingly pleasing to him in my sexual life. And let me remind you that if that's your hope, if that's your desire, you're going to have to do two things. You're going to have to demonstrate total abstinence from any form of sexual sin. Don't even play with it. Don't get close to it. And number two, you're going to have to Ask for the Spirit's help to keep your body and its sexual passions under control. As I close tonight, I know there may be some who have listened to this message and you're thinking to yourself, what if I've already messed up? What if I've already given in to sexual sin? What if I'm currently involved in sexual sin? Is there hope? Because sometimes in a message like this, it almost sounds like you went too far. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because one of the most encouraging scripture passages is also written by the Apostle Paul in Romans 5 and verse 20. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. I can't promise you that you won't face some unavoidable consequences for sexual sin. But I can promise you this. If you confess, that means acknowledge your sin. If you repent, that means change your mind, which will then change your behavior. If you get back in God's will for your life, which is sexual sanctification, and you'll commit to that, I promise you'll receive grace. God's not done with you. He'll give you grace, not just to forgive you your sin. He'll give you grace to sin no more. Just like he did for the woman who was caught in adultery in the book of John. All the religious leaders had stones in their hands and they were ready to cast stones at her for her sin. And Jesus walked onto the scene and he told those religious Pharisees, rulers, he said this, I want whichever one of you who has never sinned to throw the first stone. And slowly they put their stones down knowing that they were all wicked sinners themselves. And Jesus looked at that woman caught in sexual sin and he said this to her. I don't condemn you. I'm gonna give you grace. I'm gonna forgive you. But I'm not just gonna give you grace to wipe away your sin. I'm gonna give you grace to go and sin no more. 
And that's my message to you. If you have messed up sexually, God's not done with you. We're not throwing rocks at you. That's not been my spirit or my tone or my intention tonight. God says, I got grace for you. I'll give you a new start. And on top of that new start, I'll give you grace and strength by way of the Holy Spirit to go and sin no more. God loves you. And if you're still breathing, God is still working. If you're not dead, God's not done. So you get up, you confess and repent of your sexual sin. And you let God give you the grace you need to remain pure. God's will for your life tonight is that you become increasingly more pleasing to him through being committed to his will for sexual sanctification. Let me pray with you. Father, I love you. Thank you for your word. And uh, Lord, it's certainly not a passage of scripture that's easy to preach, especially in this setting. It's not comfortable. It's not popular for sure. I'm, I'm concerned that there will be some on the other side of this camera looking through their telephone tonight or watching on a computer tonight or a tablet. And Lord, they might interpret this message to be harsh might interpret it to be unloving. Lord, but I pray that they would understand that this is God's word. And this is God's expectation. This isn't me. If they despise this message, Father, help them to understand they're not despising me. They're not rejecting me. They're rejecting your call on their life to holiness. And in the sexually driven world in which we live where every man makes up his own rules. I pray that this message would find soft hearts tonight. It would realign some sexual passions. It would refuel some focus to stay sexually pure. And Lord, I pray for those that have messed up, that they wouldn't Walk away from this sermon having felt dirty and guilty and unloved. But Lord, they would be challenged to confess their sin. And then claim the promise that when they do, you're faithful and just to forgive them their sin and cleanse them from all unrighteousness. So help us, Lord, to be increasingly more pleasing to you through committing to your will for our life for sexual purity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen. Well, thank you, church, for your attention to God's word tonight. I know it was a tough message, a tough subject, but I think it was much needed in the world in which we live. And so thank you so much for tuning in to our midweek service. I hope that you'll tune back in this coming Sunday morning right at 10 o'clock. We'll have worship music. We'll have some special music. Pastor will be preaching. There'll be a, a part in the, in the video for your kids to watch. And uh, we will have church again all day on Sunday. We'll be back in Thessalonians uh, next Sunday night. And we'll look at that next passage of Scripture in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. I love you. We'll see you on Sunday. God bless you.